I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, a deadline at the Supreme Court as Donald Trump and his attorneys press his claim of total immunity from criminal prosecution. Details and analysis ahead. International consequences. Israeli forces free two hostages from Hamas captivity over the weekend, but at what cost? We have a report from the White House. The brave and the bold. Learn more about Argentina's first female saint from EWTN's Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tonhauser. And love beyond words, how we as Catholics can promote the sanctity of marriage as traditional family values hang in the balance. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us. Our top story tonight, today marked an important legal deadline for former President Donald Trump in the case charging him with plotting to overturn the 2020 election. Last week, a federal appeals court rejected Trump's immunity claims and ruled the trial in U.S. District Court should proceed. That court gave him until today to file an emergency appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court could reject the emergency appeal, allowing the trial to begin or extend the delay while it hears arguments on the immunity issue. The justice's decision on the appeal will likely determine whether the trial happens before the November election. And joining us now is Derek Muller, law professor at the University of Notre Dame and nationally recognized scholar in the area of election law. Derek, good to have you back on the show. We appreciate it. Uh, as mentioned, today was the deadline for former President Trump to file his appeal to the Supreme Court. For those not familiar with the appeals process, how exactly does it work and how long could it take in this particular case? Sure. So this is a little bit more of a complicated two-step process. The first step is to ask for a stay of the mandate. That is, the D.C. Circuit had a mandate saying that the court, the trial court can continue, the prosecution can continue. And the first request is to ask the Supreme Court to stay that, to freeze that lower court decision and hold everything in place while the Supreme Court hears that second step, the petition for writ of certiorari or the appeals process itself. So that goal today is sort of essentially to freeze things in place. And that's the request that's being put in front of the Supreme Court today. So we'll see what the Supreme Court does with that request. But, uh, you know, their decision here could be make or break moment for Trump. Derek, what happens if the court denies the appeal? Right. So if the court denies it, then that is essentially saying the trial court and the criminal process can continue to play out as it has been playing out before. That means the immunity claim was denied and the Supreme Court has no interest in freezing uh, that decision. Instead, the case will go back to the trial court and it will proceed. And so there was a March 4th scheduled date for the beginning of some of these proceedings. There's a chance those things could get pushed out later, depending on how long the court takes here. Um, but there's no question that a denial will be a huge loss for Trump and, and a move into the, the criminal process. Yeah, and what about the timing of all this and the potential impact that it could have on the election? Let's talk about that. Yeah, the Supreme Court is is juggling a lot of things right now. It just heard arguments last week and whether or not Trump's name can appear on the ballot in Colorado and the primary process. 
is now facing this question, which is sort of a make or break moment for his criminal prosecution. And obviously, a criminal prosecution that goes to trial in March could have an effect or ripple effect in the presidential primaries and through the, the nominating convention. Um, so the Supreme Court is going to feel pressed to act as quickly as it can. So I think there's going to be an intense pressure to decide this month uh, whether or not it wants to take the case. But remember, this is just asking for that sort of first step, a stay of mandate, just asking the to, whether or not to freeze things below. And the Supreme Court might not have to give a long list of reasons for that. It might not have to explain itself. It just might summarily affirm or deny. Maybe some justices would write separately, but the denial would certainly result in in things moving very quickly from here on out. We have about a minute or, la or so left here, Derek. But quickly, you know, former President Trump isn't the only presidential uh, candidate facing some issues. Late last week, a special counsel's report concluded criminal charges were not warranted against President Biden for his handling of classified documents. However, that report did question his mental acuity and also described him as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. You know, while no candidate we know is not without challenges, it seems both of the frontrunners here have a myriad of issues. Um, have we ever seen anything like this before in an election cycle? And how much do you think these issues matter to voters? Well, the first is I think the matters uh, issue a lot or these matters matter a lot to voters. If you see the polling questions about the, the candidate's age and mental fitness, questions about whether or not a candidate could be criminally prosecuted or, or found guilty at a criminal trial are major issues for the public. So this is a this is a precarious moment for American democracy. Um, we've never had candidates this old before running for president. We've never had candidates who are facing uh, criminal charges who are continuing in this part of the political process. So we're at a pretty precarious moment as we think about the 2024 presidential election. We haven't had primaries that have been robust in terms of competition from the candidates. The voters and the party seem content with their choices right now, even if the American public as a whole may not be. So we're heading into 2024 with, I think, a lot of dissatisfaction, which is an unfortunate place for us to be. And we're going to leave it right there. Derek, always great to be with you. Thank you so much for your insights. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Former President Trump has caused a political stir following uh, some controversial comments about the NATO alliance this weekend. He spoke at length about other nations in the alliance contributing more money. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. A Trump campaign senior advisor defended the comments, saying the former president would be able to persuade allies to increase their defense spending. But Trump's comments alarmed many and spurred reaction from world leaders, including the European Union's foreign policy chief. Let's be serious. NATO cannot be an alliance à la carte. It exists or it not exist. But I'm not going to spend my time comment any silly idea that comes during this electoral campaign in the U.S. Joseph Morel's comments echoed those of the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, who said that Trump's comments put the safety of U.S. troops and their allies at risk. Other world leaders added that full solidarity with NATO is needed during the present conflict 
with Russia. Our President Joe Biden welcomed Jordan's King Abdullah to the White House today to discuss the war in the Middle East and the hostages still held in Gaza. This amid growing concern over Israel's proposed military operation in Rafah. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. The meeting between President Joe Biden and King Abdullah II comes just hours after Israeli forces rescued two hostages, storming a heavily guarded apartment. All this as efforts continue tonight to reach a deal to pause the fighting, get the remaining hostages out, and get more aid and supplies into the region. President Joe Biden welcomes the King and Queen of Jordan to the White House. While overseas in Gaza, a dramatic special forces raid in Rafah, Israel rescued two hostages, 60 and 70-year-old men, who were abducted by Hamas October 7th. The rescue team shielding the hostages with their bodies as the battle erupted. A wave of heavy airstrikes launched to cover the rescuers reportedly killed dozens of Palestinians, including women and children. The strikes also flattening several residential blocks. In the White House press briefing room, and so while we're very glad that two hostages are now back with their families where they belong, we certainly mourn any loss of innocent life uh, as a result of those operations. Israel has described Rafah as the last remaining Hamas stronghold in the territory and signaled that it may soon target the town, where 1.4 million Palestinians have fled fighting elsewhere to seek safety. There are legitimate military targets that the Israelis are going to want to go after in Rafah. Again, we just urge them, as we have, to be careful. Meanwhile, this morning, President Biden also spoke to the National Association of Counties Legislative Conference in Washington, D.C., at one point referencing his own memory after recently being accused of memory lapses. I know I don't look like it, but I've been around a while. <laughs> I do remember that. Now back to that raid that saved two hostages. Israel says it was based on precise intelligence and planned for some time. Now tonight, still about 100 hostages remain in Hamas captivity. They are believed to be spread out and hidden in tunnels. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been hospitalized at Walter Reed Medical Center once again. The Pentagon says the defense secretary was brought to the hospital to address a bladder issue as he continues to recover from prostate cancer. As of Sunday evening, he transferred the duties of his office to his deputy. The drama medical director at Walter Reed says the current issue is not expected to change his full recovery. Well, there is ample evidence that Iran was behind the Hamas attacks on Israel in October. Since then, Iranian-backed militants have attacked American troops and interests more than 165 times, leaving many to wonder, should the U.S. strike Iran directly? Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has been gauging the mood among lawmakers and joins us now with the latest. Good evening. The United States has been hitting Iranian proxies, Houthis, Hezbollah, Hamas, and other groups in Yemen and Syria, but not Iran directly. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle tell me that the key is to stop the funding of these groups by imposing heavy sanctions directly on Iran. They got the money because sanctions were lifted. And so we've got to, at a minimum, we have to go after that. There's no doubt about it. But the Biden administration won't do it because they're so desperate for a nuclear deal with Iran and reviving the Obama deal. I think as many sanctions as we can put on them, uh, we probably ought to pursue at this point in time again because their malevolent uh, support uh, of proxies to spread their terror and hate uh, is, is, needs to be unacceptable. 
Others tell me more direct action is necessary. It is now time to pay the Ayatollah back blow up his oil infrastructure, start hitting in, uh, uh, his military infrastructure inside of Iran, he will stop. If you want a war with us, bring it on. Lawmakers say Iran must be put into check, especially after a hacker group broke into the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps email servers earlier this month and grabbed data showing the sale of millions of dollars worth of Iranian drones to Russia. Drones that Russia is using against Ukrainian forces. But Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner doesn't think striking Iran directly is a good strategy. Even President Trump, who never had a good word to say about Iran, after they took down assets under his term, he didn't strike back against Iran inside of Iran. He took out General Soleimani in Baghdad. Senate Minority Whip John Thune tells me the Biden administration must step up its response. The administration's got to take action. You cannot abide and tolerate uh, this kind of provocative, um, you know, these kind of provocative acts against your soldiers and people who are in harm's way in that region uh, and not respond and not retaliate. The White House says the U.S. will continue to hit back against Iranian proxy groups in the future. Meanwhile, the Senate is inching closer to a final vote on the $95 billion aid package to Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan. A final vote on the foreign aid bill is expected on Wednesday. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. A gunfire inside of a Houston, Texas megachurch has resulted in the death of the woman who opened fire with an AR-15. Police have identified the shooter as a 36-year-old woman who had entered the well-known Lakewood Church of Televangelist and Pastor Joel Osteen. Investigators say officers on the scene shot and killed her after she pointed the weapon at them. Two people were shot in the incident, including her seven-year-old son, who remains in critical condition, and a man who was shot in the leg. You, you said it, Chief. It could have been a lot worse. Of course, we're devastated. I mean, this is, we've been here 65 years and have somebody shooting in your church. But, you know, we don't understand why these things happen, but we know God's in control. Houston officials have not shared details about a possible motive in the shooting. The attack began while the church was at a point of transition, preparing for that day's Spanish service. Announcements were interrupted by gunfire and screaming. We have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including this new book reveals how you can strengthen your marriage and save the world while you're at it. We speak with its author, Professor Brad Wilcox, and a new chapel opens in middle America to house a first-class relic of one of our most popular saints. Near the end of National Marriage Week, a new book on the benefits of marriage is revealing some surprising data. Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites Forging Strong Families and Save Civilization dives into some of the secrets behind successful marriages and explains its premise that married couples are much more likely to be happier than others in society. And here with more is the author of that book, Professor Brad Wilcox, director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. Dr. Wilcox, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Uh, tell us why you decided to write the book and what inspired you. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work on the importance of marriage for kids, but I've been hearing from my UVA students, they're kind of worried about their prospects for marriage, particularly the women at UVA. 
And so this kind of concern led me to, to write a book on sort of the importance, the value, and kind of some ways to, to go ahead and get married for adults today. And one of the biggest points I know uh, in your book is that married people are, are really a whole lot happier than unmarried people. Tell us more about that and what ways are they happier? Yeah, we've been seeing a lot of stories, places like the New York Times, for instance, kind of talking about <clears throat> the ways in which they think that women, for instance, are kind of really miserable in marriage and miserable as, as mothers. There's a story in Bloomberg that was sort of suggested that, you know, married moms were um, less well off than single women, single childless women. In fact, the data point us in exactly the opposite direction. What we see is that for both women and men, the path to prosperity and happiness kind of runs right through marriage. So both women and men who are married, for instance, are almost twice as likely to be very happy with their lives compared to their single peers. And there's really no group that's as happy for, for men as married dads and for women as married moms. So as tough as marriage, as tough as being a parent can be, the upside to having a spouse and kids for most Americans is pretty high. Yeah, and I know you also uh, point out a few indicators for these happy, sustained marriages, and they include things like frequent date nights and even a joint checking account. But you say one of the most important is a shared faith and church going. Tell us more. Yeah, so we've seen this data is that couples who attend church together are about 15 percentage points more likely to be very happy with their marriages. They're about 30 to 50 percent less likely to get divorced, kind of depending upon the data set. And I think the thing that surprised me the most was that not only are they more sexually satisfied on average, but couples who attend church together tend to have more sex than couples who don't go to church at all. So there's just any number of kind of outcomes that look better for couples who go to church together. Yeah, and so many encouraging things from your book. Another one I want to talk about is that it shows that divorce is on the decline. That's really good news there. What can be attributed to this, especially when it seems like divorce rates were actually rising for so long? So divorce did rise a lot from the 60s to about 1980. The 70s were known as the divorce revolution. But since then, divorce has been coming down. And so today, at least, we're estimating that well below one in two couples who are getting married are going to end up getting divorced. Or to put it more positively, most of the couples who are getting married today are going to go the distance. Yeah, we have about a minute left or so, but I quickly want to get this question in. You know, we've heard so much about the erosion of marriage and family. Does your research show a turnaround for the institution? I mean, it certainly does seem like it. So I think there is some good news to report when it comes to kids. We are seeing because marriage is more stable that a growing share of kids are being raised in stably married households. That's the good news. The bad news is for American adults, we're still seeing a pretty marked decline in marriage rates, and they call that the closing of the American heart. Well, Dr. Wilcox, thanks so much for coming on and sharing all this with us. We really appreciate it. God bless. Thank you very much. Well, Hungary's President Ketelin Novak has resigned. This follows an outcry over a presidential pardon that she issued in April of last year to a man convicted as an accomplice in a sexual abuse case. Novak said that she made a mistake with that pardon that caused, quote, bewilderment and unrest for many people. Novak was the first female president in Hungary's history and an outspoken champion of traditional Christian family values. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, Love Thy Neighbor. 
How we can be Christ to others in a world starved of relationships. Plus, the story of how an 18th century laywoman became Argentina's first female saint. organization dedicated to Padre Pio has opened a chapel in rural Kansas. The chapel will permanently hold a first-class relic of the saint. The relic is a piece of bandage from Padre Pio's side. The chapel inside St. John the Baptist Church of Bloyd, Kansas opened this weekend with a mass. The St. Pio Foundation plans to inaugurate five chapels dedicated to the saint across the United States, each with a first-class relic. Paul Francis invites the faithful to reach out to the suffering, reminding them that Jesus set the example to help those who suffer with few words and concrete actions. At the Sunday address marking the World Day of the Sick, the Holy Father underlined how love needs concreteness, presence, encounter, time, and space offered graciously. Pope Francis also explained why that presence is even more important today in a world where quickly changing virtual relationships seem to be increasingly prevalent. Obama Antula has become Argentina's first female saint. Pope Francis canonized her Sunday morning at the Vatican. The event attracted dignitaries, including the president of Argentina. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tannhauser shows us the celebration. Good evening, Tracy. So it was a big day for Argentina. Yesterday on Sunday, the February 11th, Pope Francis canonized the first female saint from his home country. Many Argentinians came to Rome to celebrate together with their bishops and Pope Francis. And among them was also the recently elected president of Argentina, Javier Millet. This was a much-anticipated meeting by political observers, not least because of the insults Millet had heaped on the Holy Father during his election campaign. He especially criticized the Pope for his stance on social justice matters. None of that was a topic in a run-up or during the canonization, of course. Millet hugged Pope Francis twice and called him the greatest Argentinian in history. Today, during his official visit to the Holy See, Millet brought a special brand of lemon biscuits, something Pope Francis is known to enjoy. The president had already extended an official invite to the Holy Father to come visit his home country. While no official dates were confirmed, Pope Francis has already signaled that he desires to visit Argentina. During the canonization mass, Pope Francis stressed the importance of Saint Maria Antonia de San Jose for Argentina and for the Church. Mama Antula, as she is lovingly referred to in his home country, was a wayfarer of the Spirit, the Holy Father said. He praised her as a model of apostolic fervor and boldness, and her story truly testifies to this. Born into a wealthy family in Silipica in 1730, she wanted to serve God from an early age and started ministering to the poor. When the Spanish King Charles III expelled the Jesuits from his empire, including today's territories of Argentina, she promoted Ignatian spirituality, holding retreats and traveling hundreds of miles by foot. After her passing in 1799, her tomb in the Church of the Pietà in Buenos Aires became a popular pilgrimage destination. And if I may bring up a small miracle of sorts that we might ascribe to the influence of St. Mama Antula, the new and improved relationship between President Millet and Pope Francis, who noted that the politician cut his long hair before coming to Rome. After the canonization, they met in St. Peter's Basilica briefly, and Millet asked if he could hug and kiss the Pope. The Holy Father seemed not to care about Millet's prior insults and welcomed him with the words, Son, yes, son. 
In Rome, Andreas Tonhauser, EWTN News Nightly. Finally, back here in the United States, the Kansas City Chiefs won their third Super Bowl in five years. Last night's big game saw the Chiefs win it in overtime after scoring on a game-tying field goal with just three seconds left in regulation. This comes in the friendly bet covered on EWTN News in Depth last week between the Bishop of Kansas City St. Joseph, James Johnston, and Archbishop Salvador Cordiglione of San Francisco. Bishop Johnston appears to have won that win. Both church leaders agreed to support the pregnancy care center of the winner's choice. Archbishop Cordiglione also promised a case of the famed San Francisco treat, rice aroni. It's so good. And we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.